Hello, welcome to Sarah and Abby's Vegan Vegan Adventures. Adventures. (laughs) You like that? You'd think we'd have that down by now. Today, we are going to learn to teach. And teach to learn. We're following up on our episode four. This is four and a half, so we're not doing, we're not at five quite yet, people. This is Lion King, we're pulling a Lion King. One and a half in it. Um... We hope that you enjoyed or learned some things from episode four. And we're just want to following up on that and talking about, you know, we had a lot of kind of negative energy in episode four. So we just want to follow that up with some positivity. Exactly. And speaking of positivity. We talked about methods that we don't recommend. We don't recommend aversives for training, for learning. So what do we recommend? We recommend positive reinforcement. And all that positive reinforcement means is that it's the addition of a reinforcing stimulus following a behavior that makes it more likely that the behavior will occur again in the future. So we'll break it down a little bit. Positive means the addition of something, right? And reinforcement means to increase the likelihood of your behavior. So we're adding something to increase the likelihood that the behavior is going to happen again in the future. Right. So could we grab some examples of that? Sure. With with people, with dogs. I don't know. Just like maybe the ones that we have in our notes. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, Russell was eating something, so I had to go get it and step away from my office. Um, so I, I didn't hear you yelling at him is that <laughs> yeah um, okay so so some examples of positive reinforcement as it pertains to a person here would be after you execute a turn during a skiing lesson the ski instructor says to you great job so you did something right the ski instructor gave you praise um teaching your dog a very basic behavior like sit We ask them to sit, they do it, we give them a treat. You can use positive reinforcement on yourself, actually. If you tell yourself that if you study for an hour, you'll go to Starbucks and buy yourself a frap. Nice. I use that on myself all the time. No, you don't. Yes, I do. When? Every day. (laughs) That I get a Starbucks, I earned it. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. See? (laughs) So the important difference with positive reinforcement rather than aversives is that you're making a behavior stronger. So that desired behavior, you know, the not pulling on the leash, the quietly greeting somebody, you know, being quiet while we're eating, not begging. You're making that behavior stronger rather than punishing the unwanted behavior. I actually found a really great um, study from Central Connecticut. Ooh, Connecticut. University. That explains the difference between traditional dominance-based method of training. That method of training endorses obedience by using a human-centric approach Mm -hmm. that places the dogs in a subordinate position in order to maintain a space in the family. And then the reward-based behavior modification method, that's going to be, you know, your positive reinforcement, promotes a more dog-centric approach that highlights companionship over dominance and promotes a balance of human and dog desires and needs. That's really interesting. I like that. Yeah. So we're going to kind of be talking about, like, why is that better? Why is that the second one? <laughs> why is that a better 
method. So first of all, it's a better method for learning, science-based. So like we talked about in the previous episode, right, aversives actually slow the learning process because they can make the dog stressed. Right. And again, there's been countless studies. There's a strong association between, first of all, time spent training. So again, it takes time and performance Uh success. And again, that are you going to keep moving your phone? How do you want me to stop moving my phone? Oh, my God. Or like. Perfect. Perfect. I hate you. I hate you. Keep this in. Keep this fucking in. Mm-hmm. You're going to beat my ass? Is that what you said? What? No. So there was a scientific study. It was the first study to test the use of a remote-controlled positive reinforcement dog training system in a clinical setting. And each dog improved significantly in all categories measured, including those in multi-dog households where the other dogs also exhibited problem behaviors at the door. And I'm going to email that to you because I figured you'd want to read it because it was like with that treat Mm -hmm. thingy that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, A 2007 study sponsored by the Belgian military, so working dogs, military dogs here, the defense team's performance They found it was influenced by the training method and by the dog's concentration in two ways. So first, the low-performance dogs received more aversive stimuli than the high-performance dogs. And two, the dog's distractions influenced the performance, so the distracted dogs performed less well. So basically, only four handlers used toys to play with their dog after every correct exercise. But these defense handlers teams ranked first, third, fifth, and ninth at the total score. So they found that this reward seemed efficient enough. And they already knew from this 1980 study from Fonberg and Kostadzik that stroking and congratulating dogs has been shown to increase performance and to facilitate rapid learning. So this overall study, again, in Belgium and sponsored by their military, They noted a need to improve the dog-handler relationship with the dog and the handler's motivation to train the dog with more positive training techniques because the handlers that used less aversive stimuli on dogs obtained a higher score. Another interesting finding is that people a lot of times take their training, I guess, guidance or perceptions from working dogs because when we see working dogs, we think like, wow, they're so good, you know, but A 2016 study found that most working dogs are now trained using reward-based methods. Of course, there is frequent use of aversive training methods by military dog handlers. And then, by contrast, most trainers of search and rescue dogs prefer to use positive reinforcement, which I thought was interesting, because they noted that the use of aversive training methods for working dogs may cause fear, anxiety, reduce confidence, and behavior problems. You know, and they obviously can't have that for search and rescue dogs because you know, they're working in an emergency setting, a crisis setting, and they noted that it, it's just the same for pet dogs. So the first reason, of course, is just overall more efficient way for learning. So we hope that's clear. But if it's not, you know, there's definitely a ton of peer-reviewed articles that discuss this. The second reason why it's a better method is that it's a better way to communicate with your dog. A scientist named um, Irvine in 2004 said dogs do not speak English, French, or Spanish. They speak canine. And he said a major goal of dog training is to effectively learn how to communicate with dogs. So humans have to interpret their body language and essentially speak for the dogs, which 
is a term coined by this man named Sanders. Again, because they cannot verbally communicate through human language. People don't speak canine very well, and we violate their rules all the time. So the goal is to fix our body language and understanding the canine body language. And this is, again, from that Connecticut university study. That's exactly right. A lot of communicating with a dog is communicating, you know, through body language, because that's how dogs predominantly communicate with each other. You know, when we're asking our dogs to do things, we're not just telling them. We have to convey that with our body language, whether it's basic obedience. Every obedience cue that I use also has a hand signal. It starts out with just a hand signal. And then other, you know, behaviors that we want or we don't want, we really have to use our body language to convey a clear message to our dog with our bodies and not our voices. Right. So the study in Connecticut, are you like from Connecticut now or are you still like New York? I don't know. I'm both. I don't think you can be both. I think you have to pick. I'm both. All right. No, I'm New York. I'm New York. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, They had two groups. They had one group that focused on the positive reinforcement and then the other group focused on traditional, quote, obedience training. Thing that the study was saying was that you know, yeah, dogs do have to be trained in order to become socialized, well-behaved members of the human family. And, you know, the study acknowledged that dogs can learn the different training skills required with either method of dog training. And and I think Sarah and I did acknowledge that yesterday. You know, you, you will get results with the aversive tools. Yeah, but... you'll definitely get quick results. <laughs> Just superficially quick results. Basically she was saying in the study that all the choices dogs make are manipulated. So the differences are going to be whether they're physically forced or emphasized through a learning process. So that's kind of what positive reinforcement is doing. You're, you're teaching your dog. You're not just doing it for them. It's kind of like give a man a fish. He'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish. He'll eat for a lifetime. Yes. Beautiful. (laughs) So just really learning how to communicate with your dog. Again, those stress signals, reading their cues. <laughs> <laughs> Can I get a new like partner over here? Like production. So the third reason why we're saying this is a better way is that opponents of aversive say that we need to be dominant. We need to be the alpha. It's based off of dominance theory, which... Um... Yeah, that was those studies I was talking about in the previous episode about the wolves mm-hmm. that were disproven. Yes, and Sophia Yin, who is, was, she actually committed suicide in 2014, but she was a veterinarian, applied animal behaviorist, an author, a lecturer, internationally recognized, you know, animal behaviorist, did a lot with pet training big proponent of positive reinforcement. She did a lot of commentary about dominance submission training. And she did. She talked about how it's based on outdated ideas of wolf pack behaviors and how they don't apply to the lifestyle of domesticated dogs. Mm -hmm. So she talked about how dominance is a relationship between individuals that is established by force and aggression to gain priority access to multiple resources. So that's going to be food, preferred resting spots, mates, things like that. And that type of model 
is irrelevant for most of the behaviors that people want from their animals. So recall, walking Mm -hmm. on a leash, you know, not barking. Like we don't share, we don't compete with our animals for resources. So that, that principle, not only is it, you know, let's forget about cruel or whatever, like hippy dippy train. No, that's not what we're saying. (laughs) We're saying it it doesn't work. Like we're saying it's not effective. And dominance also is a very fluid thing. So um, there's really not a dominant animal in every situation. It's very fluid. So a dog might be dominant dominant <laughs> over um, a resting area, right? So maybe that wolf or whatever animal we're talking about gets the preferred access to that resting spot. But then when it comes to their meal, another animal gets is dominant over that animal because we're talking about a completely different resource now. So it's very fluid. So to think, you know, that our dogs, to say a dog is a dominant dog or they're trying to dominate us just in every aspect of life just really doesn't make sense to what dominance means by definition. You know, Sarah, last episode you talked about submission, and this episode you're talking a lot about dominance theory. Is there something you want to, like, come out with? Or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, Caesar Milan, Ooh. big proponent of Alpha. You have looked into him a lot. Do you want to talk about him? Sure. So Caesar Milan is very famous. What's his show called? The Dog Whisperer. Okay, yes, yes, yes. So people like his show because... It's really dramatic. So I've watched it, and it is very entertaining to watch as a show because what he does is get the shock factor. So say they're working on reactivity. They'll get a video of the dog exploding at another dog, showing teeth, growling, snarling, the whole nine yards, right? Make it look really, really dramatic. And then Caesar comes along and poof, snaps his fingers, and it's fixed within a day. So, and they get this all on camera. So it's very dramatic and there's shock value, which is why a lot of trainers that we see on TV use aversive methods because it makes for good television because it has that shock value. Having a positive reinforcement trainer on TV is not all that interesting (laughs) to look at as a viewer because positive reinforcement takes a long time. And when a positive reinforcement trainer comes, we don't want to see the behavior happen ever again, which we'll talk about management soon. So we really don't get any of that dramatic ordeals happening like how Caesar Milan does, which is why his show gets so many views, why it's so entertaining to watch. Shock value. He does a lot of dominance. He does a lot of, I um, force the dog into submission. You know, he does alpha rolling. People look at that. And they're like, oh my gosh, the dog is transformed. Caesar Milan, just wow, magical power. He is the dog whisperer, <laughs> right? So, because a lot of times, that, yeah, that, I mean, that, that, that is dog, what they call him. Yes. So, when he does that, the dog is calm, right? We'll see the dog just maybe not reacting anymore. Maybe he's walking around. When that happens, what you're seeing is not a calm, well trained dog at the snap of a finger. You're seeing something called learned helplessness. So the dog learned, we talked a little bit about this in the previous episode too. Um, The dog gets so scared 
that they learn that if they do nothing at all, the punishment stops. So that's what you're seeing with Caesar Milan in a lot of cases when he's alpha rolling the dogs and um, they end up being fixed. They're not fixed. They're scared shitless. <laughs> so, yeah. A San Francisco trainer actually commented on him, Janice Bradley. She said that the dogs, like you were just saying, fall into a helpless state. And Milan calls it like, what does he call it? Calm submission. Mm. And she says that trained behaviorists see it as chronic stress or shutdown, which we talked about yesterday. And that that can Mm -hmm. lead to a dog eventually fighting back. Yes. So, ooh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So some people who use these methods... um, I know someone who, you know, he's had dogs for all his life. He's a grown man. And he's always used, he believes in the dominance theory. And that's how he trains his dogs, mostly. And now, you know, when he learned about positive reinforcement from a friend, one of his primary arguments is that he's always, he's done this with all of his dogs and it's always worked. And all of his dogs are great dogs, which is true. This person is getting purebred dogs from reputable breeders and all the dogs end up being amazing they're very well trained they're friendly they're great so his argument is that oh well you know I do alpha roles I do intimidate my dog and it works so why would I stop you know and I bring this up because the last sentence of what you said which can lead to a dog eventually fighting back right the people who say that these methods work a lot of times just got really lucky that they were able to alpha roll a golden retriever or a lab, right? And get away with it, right? But try doing that to, you know, a more difficult breed, a more confident dog, a dog with a different past and a different learning history. And it's, it's going to be a lot different of a story. And that's, how we, you know, get really, really, really serious behavioral problems and bites. The dog <laughs> will fight back in some cases, which is the primary issue with all of this. One more comment on, you know, proponents of dominance theory say, oh, you know, your dog is going to try to dominate you. The sociologist that we talked about, um, Arvine, a little bit earlier he makes a good argument. You know, our relationships with them are necessarily unequal. They depend on us to give them food, water, and even to allow them to relieve themselves. The owner, the guardian, will exert power over the animal in training, vaccinating, sterilizing. So, you know, there's, you know, anything the dog or cat wants to do, go outside, come inside, bark at the mailman, you know, scratch, you know, everything animals do is under the human's control so that's an unavoidable aspect of the relationship that precludes the dog or the any animal from dominating over us so like it's really not something that you have to like worry about (laughs) yeah we're in control of every aspect of our animals lives there's no way (laughs) that they're scheming how to take control of us Ocom's razor, right? The simplest answer is often the correct answer. So when it comes to dominance, you know, is it simpler that the dog just needs to learn something and has and has been reinforced for the wrong behaviors? Or is it simpler to say that the dog is scheming how to dominate you and take over the world? What makes more sense? I think it's the simpler one.
that the dog needs to learn. Yeah, and the dog is just responding. For those of you who are like, okay, this is all great. Shut up. Now, how do I train my dog? (laughs) Sarah, do you want to bring in our guest? Yeah, sure. One sec. Okay. Hey, guys. Hello. This is Sarah from Sarah and Abby's Vegan Adventure, our expert today. So what do I do with my dog who has a behavioral issue? The first step in any training plan is to figure out if the dog's primary needs are being met. So... Make sure your dog is getting the proper nutrition. A lot of the big name pet food brands are not sufficient oh, for dogs. Please don't get her. Oh my god! Don't so get her started. Make sure this. that you're feeding a high. I won't get into it too much, but make sure you're feeding a high quality food. Um, sometimes just you know, if people are feeding something that's junk food, it's it's like feeding your child um, Fruit Loops for every meal. Right. That's what a McDonald's. lot of dogs. Mcdonald's sugary cereal every day for every meal. Sarah, That's we'll do a whole episode one. on pet food. Babe. Okay. Good. Well, I, we, I still need she to can talk. literally talk for days. For like 24 hours, maybe more. About pet food. Yeah. So, yeah. So, basic needs. Fig- figure out if your dog is on a high quality food. Hyperactivity and restlessness and anxiety again what would happen if you fed your kid fruit loops every meal every day they would be bouncing off the walls and that's what a lot of these main pet food brands is the are the equivalent of um is your dog getting enough exercise are they getting enough mental stimulation if you check all of these boxes and then the dog is still having issues um then yeah work on training um but a lot of times the dog's primary needs are not being met and those need to be addressed first and foremost in conjunction with whatever training you're doing. Your dog can't be eating kibbles and bits and (laughs) succeed at his reactivity training. That's not, you need to address the diet. If you have a question about your dog food, email us the brand and Sarah will send you Um, a thesis back on that brand and the history of the brand and whether or not it's good and everything about the brand (laughs) um open farm great she can also identify the brand by the shape and color of the food oh (laughs) i can she can she can identify what kind of food the dog is on based on the color and smell of their excrements oh shit Yeah. So the first step in solving any behavioral problem is through management. What management means is setting up your dog's environment so that they physically cannot perform the behavior anymore, so that they can't build the habit. So behavioral problems, right? Barking, pulling on the leash, reactivity, chewing. We want to set the dog up so that it's impossible for them to do it. The more they do it, the more it becomes a habit. Difficult it's going to be for us to break that habit. For example, say your dog is a chewer. Say you have a puppy, okay? And your puppy chews everything and gets into the garbage and chews your shoes and chews your carpet. What you're going to do is manage your puppy's environment by putting them in a puppy-proofed area, like a kitchen, like a pen, like a crate, if you're not looking at them, to physically prevent them from doing that. Say your dog barks at the squirrels out the window. The first step is going to be blocking his access to that window. 
whether it's putting blinds, putting a gate up so he can't get to the window, blocking him out of that room temporarily, anything to stop him from doing it. For some people, just getting some management solutions is the answer for them. Maybe they're okay with putting up that baby gate and blocking that window. Okay, There's nothing wrong with that. Um, maybe your dog demands barks, right? And the best solution for you is to just give him a bone or a Kong to occupy him while you're eating dinner. Are you really doing training there? No, but that's a simple solution to solve the problem. And for some people, that works. Critics say that, you know, when trainers use management, they're not training the dog. Yes, exactly. We're not training the dog. We're preventing the habit from getting worse. We're giving a very quick solution to solve the problem right now. Because like we said before, positive reinforcement training doesn't happen automatically. So if we want to stop a behavior from happening now, we need to manage the environment. Okay? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And when I'm managing, it doesn't mean that I'm letting the dog win. It's a temporary fix. Exactly. You're not letting the dog win. You're, You're letting yourself win by not having to deal with the behavior you're trying to change every single day. Right. Um, And you're acknowledging that life gets in the way and life is uncontrollable. So you know what? Until we learn, we're just going to remove it. Which leads to the next step in the training process, which is the training itself. So when we're teaching new behaviors, I always recommend the use of a clicker. So a clicker is a small little device and it makes a clicking noise. And the clicker itself doesn't tell the dog to do anything specific. It's not a cue for anything. It's just telling the dog the instant they did the correct behavior. So if you're teaching something like eye contact, look, or watch, you're going to load the clicker first by clicking and giving them a handful of treats. So you're building a positive association between the sound of that click and treats. And then click, treat, click, treat, click, treat. It's called loading the clicker making the dog learn that click means a treat is coming. Okay. So then once the dog learned that, then you start using it for training. So back to the example, I went on a tangent. You, you're teaching look. The clicker is super useful because you're going to say look or use a hand signal, however you decide to teach look. And the instant you get that eye contact, which is very fleeting in the beginning, you're going to click and then follow that with a treat. So if you didn't have a clicker in that instant, it would take a lot longer for your dog to learn what look means because, you know, you said look and then you fumble in your treat pouch and your dog is looking at your treats or into oblivion and then you're giving them Mm. a treat. So what are they getting rewarded for? So the clicker has a really distinct sound and it accelerates learning because it tells you, it tells the dog exactly what they did right, exactly what they're getting rewarded for. Um, you don't have to use a clicker. You can use a marker word. I use both. So click, or you could say something like yes or good. And you would use the, the, the marker word the same way you would use the clicker. The instant they're doing the correct behavior, you say it and then follow it with a treat. Um, so for people who don't, you know, like clickers, they say, oh, I don't want to always carry the clicker. Yeah, you don't have to. It's just for teaching Literally the beginning stages of the behavior. So 
first step of training is to figure out what motivates your dog. Some people like to say that their dog isn't food motivated. Most dogs are. So figure out what food motivates your dog. Not all dogs will work for kibble. Not all dogs will work work for a milk bone. Cook bacon. Cook steak sometimes. Cheese. Bologna. Salami. Hot dog pieces. Figure out which one of those treats really, really keeps your dog motivated. Okay? Now, is my dog going to get fat? No, but I was going to um, address that. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> um, Just ignore me. Yeah, so figure out what motivates your dog. Food, um, play, praise, petting, whatever is the primary motivator for your dog. And go for that. Go work with that. And then when dealing with behavioral problems, People have this in their head that they want their dog to stop doing something. Oh, I hate when my dog pulls on the leash. I hate when he barks at me for food. I hate when he barks at other dogs. Um, Oh, he chewed the couch. I want him to stop chewing the couch. That's great. But that's not really telling us what our training plan is going to do. So instead of making your mindset, I hate when my dog does this, or I want my dog to stop doing this, instead change your mindset to, what you want your dog to do instead. So I don't want my dog to beg at the table for food. Okay. I want my dog instead to go into the living room and lay on his bed when we're eating. I don't want my dog to bark and lunge at other dogs on walks. Okay. Instead, I want him to look at me and make eye contact with me when we walk by other dogs. And sometimes just that little simple switch in your thinking is going to make your training process a lot easier and more clear. There's some things that our dogs are going to do that we want them to stop doing immediately. So say your dog is barking at the door incessantly. They see a deer and they're barking or your dog is chewing up a shoe in that moment. Anytime you do have to get your dog to stop something, you want to interrupt them and then redirect them. So instead of telling your dog to stop barking or you say quiet, right? And he does be, he he is quiet for that moment because you taught him what quiet means. You still don't want to stop it there. You want to then call your dog back over to you and redirect them and give them praise to something that they should be doing. So they're barking at the window. Hey, Russell, quiet. He's quiet. Good boy, come. And then here's a bone. So now we redirected him to a more appropriate activity. And I think it's good to explain, like, in that moment when I'm barking at the window, I'm barking at the deer, the cortisol levels are rising. The animal is now aroused. So you can interrupt, hey, call, you know, call their name. But then you have to follow through with that redirection. I think that's what a lot of us forget to do, even myself, because, you know, that arousal doesn't just go away. They need something to redirect on and get that energy out on because arousal is still high and as soon as you know I look away from you now I'm still aroused like what do I do so give them something to do Mm -hmm. and just a command anything like come and then play with sometimes that's enough like it, it depends make that alternate behavior more reinforcing than what they were doing the redirection and the praise is really really important Reinforcement means making the behavior more likely to occur. So, and we're not focusing on what we want the dog to stop doing. So we need to make the not barking behavior a lot more reinforcing than the barking behavior. So it's more likely to occur in the future. 
And I think people need to remember, yeah, it needs to be more reinforcing, but there needs to be an alternate behavior. First of all, you have to give them an alternate behavior. Yeah. So the next step in the training process, we already found out what motivates our dog. We already came up with what we want our dog to do. Um, We're using interruptions and redirections. We have to start teaching our dogs at a level that they understand. So anytime we're teaching a new behavior, we want to go from the easiest level to the hardest. So if we're teaching our dog to walk on a loose leash, to not pull, we want to teach them what that means in a low distraction environment. So we're going to teach them the fundamentals of loose leash walking in our house where the dog hangs out the most. So maybe in your living room or your kitchen, you're going to teach them the fundamentals, what loose leash walking means. And then you gradually increase the level of difficulty. So the next step would be maybe going in another room in your house or going on your deck or your backyard where they can't see anybody. Then the next level, doing some loose leash walking in your front yard where maybe a person or a squirrel is going to be walking by. Next step, doing it on your street and then the next step would be going to a park where there's tons and tons of distractions a lot of people make the mistake especially with loose leash walking of wanting to practice at the park for the first time that's way too hard and your dog isn't going to be successful so it's really really important to start least distracting environment to most distracting environment and it's interesting because we talk about this a lot like people will give dogs so much credit in some ways but then in other ways not like when we we discussed you know are you boring your dog like people don't think about their dog all day when they're just sitting at home being bored but then and they're like oh they're fine they're just sleeping but then in other circumstances like this they'll they'll say oh well they should get it they did it once in the house like they're smart enough now so it's interesting like how we our perception of dogs is that they should be these smart like able to learn anything but then also, you know, not give them stimulation all the time. Like, you know, our dogs are smart, but, the, you know, their brains work the same as any other beings does when it comes to learning and learning theory. So yeah. repetition, it's annoying to do it 8 million times, but that's, that's yeah. why teachers should get paid more. <laughs> And um, we also have to recognize that a lot of what we're teaching our dogs is unnatural. So loose leash walking is one of those things that is not natural for a dog to do. Um, They walk at a much faster pace than us. Can you explain what you mean by loose leash walking? Sure. So loose leash walking is just having a leash that has no tension in it. So your dog is walking at your side. And there's a nice U-shape in the, in the leash, so they're not pulling ahead of you. Um, we definitely don't want a dog that's walking ahead of us, especially a reactive dog, for safety reasons. And because we want the dog to be focused on us and we can't have tension on our dog's bodies because, like we said in the previous episode, that can fuel some unwanted behaviors. So very, very important to have no tension on the leash when we walk our dogs. Nice. So when you're training and you're going from the easiest examples to the hardest, we want to make sure that we're also taking cues from our dogs. And maybe you went a little too fast. There's 
nothing wrong with going back a step or even two steps sometimes. Um, we have to make sure we're going at our dog's pace. So really take your dog's cues and recognize when they're not succeeding and when they also might be a little bit stressed out. So if you go too fast with certain things, like reactivity, um, and you get too close to a dog, maybe they aren't reacting, but they might still be uncomfortable. So that's when you're also going to want to take a step back. And a lot of people say like, oh, well, you know, my dog already knows this. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to start all over just because they're deciding not to listen. You know, you don't have to start, again, she said, like, go back a step. You don't have to go back to the house. You're not going back to that one room in your house, but you're recognizing that, you know, this is too hard right now in this moment with these distractors. Yeah. So we're going back a little bit today, and that's okay. Yeah, but there's also nothing wrong also with reteaching the fundamentals in your house too and being in a situation and recognizing when you need to leave. We also have to take our own expectations out of the equation. When we have a goal in mind, oh, I'm walking the dog. So the walk isn't about how far you're going. It's about what you're doing during the walk. So instead of saying how far you're going to go on your walk, maybe make a time limit. So I'm going to take my dog out for a 30-minute walk instead of a three-mile walk. And your dog is going to be just as tired because they're going to be working out their brains. Mm. I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up because they want to go for a walk because they want to get physical exercise and they want their dog to get physical exercise so they might let some things go. But that's not how they're going to learn. So That's a great point. Thanks. (laughs) Now, some natural behaviors, like sometimes you're not going to be able to get rid of those. Yeah. Dogs are animals. Um, They like to dig, they like to bark, they like to chew things, and they like to chase things. So you have to acknowledge when what you're dealing with is just a natural dog behavior. So we can use chewing as an example here. Dogs need to chew, puppies need to chew. So, you know, chewing household objects obviously isn't okay, so we want to make sure we stop our dogs from doing that. But we still have to acknowledge, okay, they're chewing. They need an outlet for that chewing. So providing them, making sure that all of their needs are being met in that way. And I think like this happens a lot with the with the aversives, with the barking, bark collars and even like jumping harnesses that pulls their back legs up so they can't jump. Again, those are natural behaviors. So it's like you can reward, you know, your dog when they're not reacting to whatever makes them bark. Let's say, for example, doorbell, whatever. But at the end of the day, like, if you're not ready to have a barking dog, like, you can't. I'm sorry, but, like, I'm really sorry, but you can't get a dog. Like, they, you know, they bark. Like, that's, they bark. Again, of course, there's management, like, rewarding the, the quiet times. Figuring out when what they're doing is a problem behavior versus just a normal dog behavior. And I think that's where a lot of people don't know the line. And barking is a good example of that. Your dog barking when somebody walks by, your dog barking when they're excited, you know, that's how dogs communicate. So you really have to recognize, is this actually a problem behavior? Or, you know, is my dog just acting like a dog? (laughs) If they are doing a doggy behavior, right, but you're 
on the phone and they can't be barking at a deer for five minutes, you know, find out ways to stop them. So Turid Ruges is a dog trainer and she has a really good book about barking um, and stress signals. She has a lot of good info. But what works for a lot of dogs when they're barking, they're barking because they're sh- they're telling us something is there. A lot of dog barks is, you know, something called alert barking. So if we just simply acknowledge what they're barking at, a lot of times the dogs will stop. So say your dog's barking at a squirrel out the window. If you just orient your body towards the squirrel and then look at your dog, pet them, thank you, and then walk away, a lot of times your dogs will stop barking and then follow you. Because the whole point of them barking was to show you that something was there. Right. So acknowledge it. And then again, if they don't follow you naturally, then maybe lure them away with a treat and give them another activity. But it's definitely not something to get frustrated about and correct using punishment. Yeah. And you definitely can't, like some dogs aren't going to stop when you say thank you. If there's a squirrel in the front, they're going to bark at it. and if it stops when the squirrel goes away, then you know that's a natural dog behavior. They have a prey drive. They want to eat the squirrel. You have a dog that barks at small animals. When you're training and your dog maybe doesn't do what you want in that situation, let's keep using the barking situation. You're on a call and your dog is barking out the window at a squirrel, right? You oh, say, thank you. I remember what I was going to say. Okay. So, for bar- like barking and jumping, another thing that you can try to do, let them have an outlet. So, mm. places where you don't, places where you um, feel comfortable with them barking, a dog park, maybe a field by your house, maybe, you know, there's certain times of the day when you don't mind it. Like, maybe get them to bark, like maybe, you know, play with them and encourage them to bark, do things with them that you know will get them excited I guess is what I'm saying so that they can have an outlet for that because then they're expressing themselves they're getting that out of there you know go to a park that has like picnic tables where they can jump on it maybe you don't allow them to jump on your furniture okay so jumping is still natural so go somewhere where they can you know jump and do something like that yeah exactly uh digging Oh, yeah. A lot of people have problems with dogs digging in their yard, understandably. So if your dog is a digger, maybe get a sandbox for them to dig. Maybe um, designate a certain portion of their yard of the of your yard that you don't really care about and let and redirect them to dig over there instead. So go to go to a field again, go to a dog park. You can dig here. Exactly. So make sure that this goes back to basic needs and why a lot of behavioral problems happen anyway. Um, A lot of times our dog's basic needs aren't being met. And that is the root cause to a lot, a lot, most of behavioral problems. So that's really the first step. I think a lot of people worry about positive reinforcement that they're not going to get their point across. So can you talk a little bit about you know, your dog is engaging in a problem behavior, i.e. chewing my, you know, brand new sneakers that I waited in line for. Damn, that sucks. Like, am I just supposed to be happy-go-lucky over here, honey? No. So, 
we talked about this earlier too in this same episode um body language is super important and your tone of voice so yeah if your dog is chewing your something inappropriate you want to you know reflect that in your tone of voice you don't want to yell at your dog obviously because that's a correction we're not giving our dogs corrections but we're reflecting what we want and if their behavior is appropriate or inappropriate using our tone of voice and our body language. So if Russell is chewing a sneaker, right? Instead of saying, Russell, leave it like that. I'm going to say, Russell, leave it. That's my tone is reflecting what I want. Right. Um, so in those situations, you want to master red light, green light communication. If you want your dog to come to you, a lot of people make the mistake of saying, um, come, very monotone, angry sometimes if the dog isn't listening. Russell, come. Okay, that's what a lot of people do. You'll hear it at the dog park. Um, come, come, come. Yes. Come. So come. they did studies. This is in the book, um, The Other End of the Leash, where she talks about it a lot. How, much, what do you read? How many books do you read? Girl, damn. I've never seen you reading. Okay. What, do you well, read I in the middle the other... of the night? I do. Do you, like, hide the fact that you read? I do. No, I'm just kidding. So The Other End of the Leash um, by Patricia McConnell. Strongly recommend this book. She talks about how our tone of voice really influences the dog's behavior. So, and they did studies on horses and a bunch of other animals. So when you want the dog to do something active, right? Like come to you, run, anything active, you want to reflect that in your tone. So, and you're again, body language. So if I'm telling the dog to come to me, instead of saying, Russell, come, I'm going to say, Russell, come and run away and be really excited and turn my body away from him. And that's going to make him come to me instead of facing towards the dog and saying, Russell, come, because that sounds like I want him to stay stationary. Does that make sense? So if I'm saying stay, right? Say, okay. I want the dog to stay. I'm not going to say, Russell, stay. (laughs) Because that's exciting. And my tone of voice makes him want to come to me. If I want the dog to stay and do something calm, I'm going to say, Russell, stay. So when they were doing the study on horses, they found that when they said high-pitched noises, really high frequency, that made the animal want to move quicker and do do active things. But when you talk in a deeper voice, monotone that's going to make the animal stay stationary so the worst thing you can do if you want your dog to come to you is to say come (laughs) that's how every person says come yeah ever come what are you doing (laughs) come like i think i've noticed people make their voices deeper too they do. I, be do like, I do. <laughs> I swear. I think there's a class uh, on how to make your voice deep when you say come. <laughs> come. Say come like you're talking to your sexual partner. Ew. That should be the new thing. Ew. Come. Ew. <laughs> no, but like saying come and then following it with a let's go let's go let's go and running in the opposite direction yeah, like you're talking to your sexual partner 
<laughs> is gonna work so yeah and moving in the direction that you want the animal to go like orienting your body in the direction you want them so saying come and facing them really doesn't work um you want to face away you want your body position to be in the position that you want them to go so I want my dog to come to me I'm gonna face away from them and walk away from them in an emergency situation, you know, that's why we teach our dogs to come so they know what come means. So we don't have to do all that all the time, but generally, generally speaking, mm-hmm. but Sarah, it's more fun to say come. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Cause I, I struggle with that. I think like, I don't want to sound mean, but I think, you know, Sarah, Sarah <laughs> does a really good job of explaining like, no, you're not being mean. Like, you're just, you're conveying what you want with your tone. And Super Nanny, shout out Ooh. to Nanny Joe. Basically, if you want to know how to train your dog, literally watch Super Nanny, the new season, and then pretend mm-hmm. that the kids are the dogs. Because, honestly, everything that, they, everything that she says and teaches is how, is how you train a dog. Yeah. Because it's, it's learning, and it's, it's mm-hmm. teaching. And it's just as much about you as the dog owner as it is about the child. Just as much as it's about the parents Ooh. as it is about the child. Ooh. So Nanny Joe really focuses on, like, what are you doing as the parent? So she'll tell the parents, like, why are you talking to them like that? Like, use your, you know, use a firm voice. And, you know, so it's okay to use a firm voice. We're not, like, being happy-go-lucky all the time. We're not saying you have to be hippy dippy with your dog. We're just saying, is that offensive? No. Okay. It's not. We're <laughs> we're just saying you're not punishing them. You're just you're showing them the right way. Yes, and also like besides just teaching them what we want and what we don't want to get them to obey. Also, our tone can also reflect like the mood of the situation too. So a lot of times, um, in vet offices, right, owners will be in the office, touching their dog and patting them. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Calm down, calm down. It's okay, bud, it's okay. And tapping them, right? And petting them on the head. It's okay, it's okay. That's, again, like I said, talking at a high pitch and really um, fast is making the dog excited and more amped up. So when you want your dog to be calm, you're at the vet. It's okay, good boy. But yeah, I think that's also important with, not dealing with but how we deal with you know situations that are fueled by emotion so reactivity again going back to that example how we react to reactivity oh yes so with a reactive dog we really want to make sure that our body language and our tone is calm because we want our dogs to be calm yeah and if it's not working you know if you're trying to get let's say, for example, a sit, and they're not sitting, you know they know it. Um, again, we're not going to push on their bum. We're not going to raise our – we're not going to say sit louder, right? They're not deaf. Um, Sarah talks a lot about lowering criteria and increasing the value of the motivation. So, you know, it's also important that we only say our cues once. So if we say sit and our dog doesn't sit, we don't want to say sit, 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 sit because – sit means sit 
So if we say sit and our dog doesn't sit, okay, why? Are we in a distracting environment? Um, are they not motivated to listen to us in that moment? So, you know, we can't, if the dog walks away when we ask them to do something, no, we can't let our dogs learn that, you know, they could just leave because we're trying to teach them something. So we do want to get them to perform the behavior or an alternate behavior that we ask them, but make it easier. Um, Am I using kibble in this session? Maybe we're not at the point where he knows sit without the hand signal. Let me try to use a hand signal. Um, Let me ask for a different behavior. Maybe they're really tired and they don't feel like sitting because it's hurting their legs. Let me ask for a touch right now instead. Yeah, or something more fun for them. Maybe like a paw. Yeah, something. Um, you know, dogs don't not listen to us out of spite. People have trouble with that concept. Yeah. So now I think we'll talk a little bit about what critics say about positive reinforcement. One of the main ones I hear is that, oh, the dog is stubborn and they know what sit means. They're just not doing it. Yeah. The dog isn't stubborn. Yeah. So some interesting research about you know, dogs don't do things um, that go against their own self-interest. A dog isn't ever going to make a choice that is going to prevent them from getting what they want. They want your attention. They want food. Reinforcement. Right. And humans, what do we have that dogs don't? Prefrontal cortex. Mm. So what can we decide to do we can decide to withhold things even though we want them because sometimes the pleasure from knowing that we've denied someone else that same pleasure is stronger is a stronger reinforcer than the pleasure itself for example a partner withholding sex you know for whatever reason to be cute to be flirty to be manipulative it could be a lot of things of course They might have that desire too. So they're also losing out on the pleasure of that stimulus. But to them, it might be more reinforcing knowing that their partner, you know, is wanting them, is like craving them, is whatever. That might be stronger than the pleasure and reinforcement than they would get from just having sex right then and there. Dogs don't do that is what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's, it's too, it's to think it's about too complicated. that requires a higher level of critical thinking that again, they're just not capable of. So they don't make choices that serve against themselves. You know, they're not going to say, Oh, I didn't get the cookie, but at least I, I told her who was boss. Like exactly. That's never going to happen because to them, it would be more worth it to get the cookie. Yeah, and people seem to legitimately think that their dog is not listening because they're saying, fuck you. I don't want to listen to you. Yeah. You know, I've literally heard that before. The dog is being spiteful. The dog just isn't listening because he's a dick. Yeah. Yeah, the dog sits there and says, fuck you. Exactly. I don't want to sit down right now. Yes. And again, like we said before, that that principle, Occam's razor. Yeah. Occam's. Occam's. Occam's razor says that the simplest answer is often the correct answer. So is your dog saying fuck you to you? 
Or is your dog not motivated? I think the dog just isn't motivated in that moment or it's too difficult. Or the dog is confused. I'm just reading a study right now. So what people are doing in that moment is anthropomorphizing them. You know, mm. making, giving them human emotions. And, of course, we do that. And, of course, you know, they do have emotions. But dogs don't have the ability to reflect or ponder time. We know that they live in the present. They do have memory, but it works differently. So, basically, it's just like, you know, their feelings trigger when something happens to them that they experienced before. Um, I have to tell you something about Russell. Right now. And a memory. Right now? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Are you going to write it down so you don't forget? No, just just remind me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so... The study is saying, like, the inability, the inability to reflect means that they don't do things out of spite. Mm. They're not capable of reflection or living in the past, which ensures they're not able to seek revenge. And it ensures that they're not capable of spite. Yeah. And then this is the American Psychological Association pedigree, how stuff works in Smithsonian. So there you go. Another point that critics make about positive reinforcement, um, they get worried that their dog is going to get fat eating all of these treats, right? So, first of all, no, if you do it correctly. So, we don't want to be giving our dogs whole milk bones when we're doing repetitions of a behavior. Uh, that is, is going to make them fat. Wait, we're not? No, we're not. Just kidding. So, you can use your dog's meals. And make that training time. I like to tell people to take the food bowl pledge. Oh my god. Here we go. We talked about that I think in another episode about enrichment. But you know. Feed your dog their meals. Doing your training repetitions. For whatever you're working on. Or a portion of it. You know take a handful out of their meal. And put that in your treat pouch to use for later. If they'll work for kibble. In the setting that you're doing. Um, Use teeny tiny pieces of things so those high value rewards who are using cheese teeny tiny pieces of cheese the size of the pea we're gonna give our dogs because we are giving them a lot of it hot dogs cut each little slice little circular slice into like eight pieces make them that small really small teeny tiny pieces another thing people say is that they don't want to bribe their dog to do something yeah so that's what I think a lot of critics say. Um, we don't want to constantly be waving a treat in our dog's faces and only have them respond when we have a treat, right? That's what a bribe implies. If you do positive reinforcement training correctly, you phase out the food reward very, very quickly, which also ties into, will my dog get fat? You're not constantly going to be giving this many treats for the rest of your dog's life. It's just very early on in the training process. So the way, you know, training works is first we get the behavior by using a food lure or another way, right? It's like you said food whore. Food lure. And then the next step, like really early on, is taking that food lure out of your hand. So if you're still training your dog with a piece of food in your hand, fade that out. Um, Get them to respond with just the hand signal. We're We're not bribing our dogs, you know, and then work on fading out the treat pouch don't always wear the treat pouch around your dog a lot of dogs will respond to that make it hide um treats 
in jars around your house if you could. So you always have reinforcement available with hands free and nothing on you. That's how you're going to get really reliable responses from your dog. So, yeah, if you if you do it correctly, you are by no means bribing your dog. And even if you never shaded out the food lore in your hand, that's that's still not a bribe. The dog still learned something. They still learned the behavior you want. Early on in the process, we're rewarding with a food reward every single time they do it. And then once they're doing it reliably, we don't reward with a food reward every time. Then it's every other time. And then it's randomly. So once your dog knows sit, you don't give them a treat every time. And that's actually going to make the behavior stronger. A variable reinforcement schedule makes behavior stronger, which is why behaviors like jumping are so hard to break if you are not consistent. Because letting the dog jump on you one time out of every 10 times is going to make him bank on that one time he got attention. Huh. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, if, once your dog knows the behavior, vary that reinforcement. So sometimes they get praise. Good job. Sometimes sit and then you get to go out into the yard. Sit and then go sniff this fire hydrant. Um, sometimes give them a handful of treats. Give them one treat. Yeah, we're not always giving the same reinforcement and it's not all of the time and that you know brings us to the next critical point um people say that they don't want to always carry food or their clicker you know your dog isn't going to need the clicker when they're 10 years old walking down the street with you because they learned it already they know what it means why don't we use clickers with kids i don't know we should start yeah okay so We talked about some ways to train barking, Um, again, recognizing whether or not it's a problem bark or whether it's a natural behavior bark, making sure they have an outlet for that barking, making sure you're rewarding when you're having quiet moments. We talked about recall a little bit. Do you have any other tips for training recall with positive reinforcement? Yeah, so something common with recall is that once we, our dogs will be reliable in our house and in our yard and maybe, you know, in an empty field, they'll come reliably when they're focused on us or with mild distractions. But once we're at a park or we're, you know, say we're at the dog park or we're on an off-leash hike, um, saying come a lot of times, the dogs, it seems like they just don't hear it. And I think that happens with a lot of dogs and when they're so focused on playing with another dog or running into traffic, um, our voices just don't cut the barrier to them. And that's why a lot of people use shock collars for recall because they say they need to get their dog's attention, Mm -hmm. right? And recall is one of those things where we do need to get our dog's attention. I just started using a whistle with Russell, a whistle with Russell. It's a, it's a hunting whistle. It's what people use for hunting dogs. It's a certain frequency that seems to really, like, cut through the trees, through a long distance. A dog I, whistle? Yeah. It's Wait, blow dogs. it. Does it, can I hear it? Yes, I'm going to have to reward him, so let me not, actually, because he's sleeping. Okay, <laughs> good idea of recognizing, you know. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, the whistle is something I've noticed such a change. Um. Because it makes such, just like the clicker, it makes a very distinct noise. So if he is distracted and I blow that whistle, he's like, what? 
and he knows that that means something really, really pleasant. Um, recall. So I know we said we want to use a variable reinforcement schedule for a lot of our behaviors, right? So giving different types of praise, some reinforcement might be better than other types of reinforcement, right? So for training, sit, give him a hot dog once, give him praise another time. The hot dog is obviously better than the praise. With our recall, we want to protect that. So you need to give a very, 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 very high reward every single time your dog comes to you. Mm. Okay. So that is one of the cases where every time we want to have treats ready or, um, you know, say it's an emergency, lots of praise and play time when they come to us. Never use your recall for something bad. So if you are leaving the dog park, um, it's tempting to say, come or blow your whistle and then leave. That's not protecting our recall. Every single time they come to us, something good has to happen. Oh, and I think that's something people forget. Like you need to, con- you need to keep rewarding your dog. Like even if your dog is potty trained, like every time she goes to the bathroom outside, I'm still making a huge deal out of it. Yeah. So even if your dog is, you know, has great recall, still make a big deal about it every time they do it because yeah. that's what learning is. And that's what mm. reinforcement is. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I I think people forget that like once the dog knows it, they kind of stop the training process. You know, oh, they yeah, they know re- they know recall so well. Um great. So let's keep it that way. Yeah, and do maintenance. Yes, behavior maintenance. It's like when you work when you're, you know, a gym person. <laughs> a gym person. Mm. When you work out and you get to, you know, the weight or the, you know, muscle mass that you want, you don't just stop working out. Exactly. You have to maintain that. Exactly. And you don't have to maybe maintain it in the same ways, you know, the same intensity that it took to get there. But yeah, with behaviors, once they know it, they know sit. Russell knows sit very well. I'm not going to just ignore him when he sits. Mm -hmm. Um. And that's forever. Yeah, that's going to be something forever till your dog the day they go over the rainbow bridge. Um, what about jumping? So jumping is difficult. So fundamentally speaking, it's very simple. Um, they're jumping because they want our attention. It's a natural behavior to want to get up to our faces, right? They, they're jumping on us to get to our faces, to look our faces. It's a friendly gesture. Um, by using positive reinforcement, right, we're going to reward our dogs for the behavior we want. So we want our dogs to greet us by sitting or by not jumping. When all four paws are on the ground, basics. You know, this is going to change from dog to dog. Maybe we want our dogs to go to their place because they get, like, super amped up. We don't know what a place is. Oh, it's just like, um, whatever. It's their bed. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So we're not going to give them attention when they are jumping on us, right? We're going to cross our arms, turn our back, not say no, not say off, because that's still attention. And then once all four paws are on the ground, we're going to give them attention. First step is management, right? So when guests come over, maybe we're going to have our dogs on a leash. Maybe we're going to put them up behind a baby gate at first until they calm down, maybe in their crates. Physically prevent them from jumping on guests in the beginning while you work on training, which is reinforcing the sitting or the all four paws on the floor and ignoring the jumping. 
the reason jumping is so difficult is because it's very difficult to control other people. So how many times are you walking your dog that you're trying to train to not jump and they jump on someone and you put them into a sit and the person says, oh, no, it's okay, and starts petting your dog when they're jumping on them. Like we said before, with the variable reinforcement, um, when a behavior is only rewarded some of the time, the behavior can get stronger. And that's what happens with jumping. So mm. a lot of times, you know, oh, maybe you let the dog, dog jump on you because you don't care. Um, or you only let them jump on you sometimes when you're just tired and you don't care. That's going to make it worse. So it's all or nothing with the jumping, you know. You either accept it, that it's a thing, or you really got to... I like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so that's why jumping's hard. And jumping is also self-reinforcing. So self-reinforcing is that doing the behavior outside of any external reinforcement is, rein- is reinforcing. So if, even if you're turned around, just the action of jumping on you is fun. And or it's counter surfing, right? Or yeah, counter surfing. Anything that the dog can practice that they think is fun or rewarding in some way can be challenging. So that's why with jumping, we really management is our friend because we really just want to get them to not jump. Period. Reactivity. So reactivity um, is probably the number one reason people use aversives. Um, like e-collars and prong collars to correct the dog when they're lunging and barking at another dog. And the reason people feel the need to do this is because their dog won't respond to treats when they're in that state of arousal, which is true. When you have a reactive dog um, trying to get their attention, even with a really, really high value treat when they're past their threshold is just not going to happen. So that's where, you know, really understanding learning and thresholds and your individual individual dog comes into play. So with reactivity, you have to, the first step, you know, is figuring out that distance where your dog doesn't react and working from there. Some dogs only react when the dog is in their face. Some dogs react when the dog is the length of a football field away. Whatever that distance is where your dog can notice the other dog is there, but still focus on you, that's where you're going to start. And you're going to set up situations where that's possible. So outside of a pet store is a really good place to start because you can, there's Mm -hmm. one, Mm -hmm. one or two doors where the dogs are entering and exiting from, and you can control your distance. And you just, you know, whatever method you choose, if you choose to have to say, look, or, you know, you're just doing basic classical conditioning. Um, You work from that distance. And the idea, again, is that we are preventing our dogs from practicing the unwanted behavior. So with the reactive dog, you really want to avoid situations where they're going to be past their threshold of arousal. With reactivity um, and problem behaviors, life obviously happens. So say you're walking your dog your reactive dog and a dog sneaks up on you have a plan for that the plan for that is doing your best to create distance and keeping a loose leash in those situations so emergency u-turns which again teach your dog what that means inside your own home and practice it practicing turn 
where your dog makes a quick turn and walks away with you, you know? Um, so I shouldn't, like, pull out, like, pull on their leash when they're, like, barking at a dog? No. So Why? Yeah, because, like we talked about, you know, tension on the leash creates frustration, which can fuel aggression. So the if you, you know, any take-home message with reactivity is do whatever you can to keep your leash loose. Your leash loose. Um, if that means standing in front of your dog and body blocking them and using some treats to get their attention, um, going behind a car, jumping into bushes <laughs> to avoid looking at the other dog. Um, anything you have to do to keep your leash, your, I can't say that for some reason, your leash loose. Leash loose. Leash loose. Leash loose. Leash loose. Another good tip also for like a, just pretty much anything but also the reactivity if you're feeling yourself getting frustrated and you just can't mm. right now <laughs> with something you know um that's girl, me all the time yeah like your dog's bugging and you just like don't know what to do throw treats on the floor so go in your little mm-hmm. fanny pack and your treat pouch and just toss some treats on the floor russell look and Toss them on the floor and have your dog. You better not just wake him up. No, he's still sleeping. And have your your dog just sniff them out and eat them. That's going to give you a minute to kind of take a deep breath and relax. Because remember, like, the more out of control your dog gets, the more in control you have to be. So as a trainer, as a handler, a dog parent, you have to acknowledge, like, recognize in your own self when you're getting frustrated and take a minute. Um, I have to do that a lot. <laughs> um, in dog training or like? Yeah, like with Russell and just with like dog, like at work. And like life. And life and just every second of my life. <laughs> Trying to just recognize when I've had enough, you know, you're at the park and your dog's reacting. Just leave or just go sit in your car for a minute. So... There's no such thing as, you know, the perfect dog. And everybody has different ideas and opinions about, you know, what a well-behaved dog is. So, you know, only focus on the behaviors that matter to you and the training solutions that work for you. Like I said before, if, if management, if, you're react, if your dog is reactive and it works for you to just avoid dogs on walks, do that. That is perfectly okay. You know, if your dog only reacts in your own neighborhood and you just want to avoid walks in your own neighborhood altogether, fine. As long as all your dog's basic needs are being met and you're exercising them elsewhere, do that. Um, If your dog demand barks when you're eating and you would prefer to just give them a Kong or put them in their crate with a bully stick, do that. You know, um, if you don't mind that your dog barks at men because you live by yourself Mm -hmm. and you know you have it under control to where your dog will only do a bark or two and then you say oh it's okay that's fine don't let other people's you know perceptions of you or like how they want their dog to act or like how they think your dog should act don't let that fuel how you want to you know teach your dog or interact with your dog exactly and I think you know bouncing off of that Our dogs are individuals, and 
we have to do what works for our dogs and acknowledge like what doesn't and that you know not every dog is going to respond to the same to situations the same way not every dog is going to be good with strangers not every dog is going to be good with other dogs and you can't force that on your dog some dogs love everybody they meet and that's great if your dog isn't like that you know maybe your dog is shy maybe they were under socialized um don't push your dog to be something that they're not not every dog is okay with strangers petting them and that's okay we obviously don't want to we don't want a dog that's lunging and reacting towards strangers on our walks so we want to train that but we have to be advocates for our own dogs mm. and acknowledge when it's just not in their personality to like certain things not every dog is a dog park dog and that's okay yeah i think it's about like realizing okay i'm at management and you know what i don't need it to be any better than this like for example momo the cat mm. she um, when I got her, would go up to people and scratch them and attack them. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's not okay because I want to have people over. So we worked on that. So And now she doesn't do that. She will not seek you out and attack you. But you can't. I can. But. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> but if. A stranger comes over and tries to pet her, she will scratch them or bite them. So I just tell people not to pet her. And that mm-hmm. works for me because I don't, clearly she is shy around people. That's fine. I'm not going to stress her out. I know that I could if I really wanted to. You know, every time somebody comes over, let's, you know, here, give her a treat. Like, let's do the. But you know what? She doesn't have to like people. Yeah, and that's, like that's okay. Your goal with your cat, you know, um, if and her goal, like she's not a people person. Yes, you know, as long as you're keeping other people and animals and your own animal safe, that's the thing. Like we're we're not saying let your dog or cat just you know bite people because they feel like biting people. No, we want to make sure that everybody's safe, but within that safety comes you know understanding what your own individual animal wants and what stresses them out Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then just to kind of I think I want to end on Mm. a somber note but also positive if that's okay with you yeah I want to read some some of Sophia Yin's quotes oh yeah Mm -hmm. so again like we said Sophia Yin created the treat and train so again great tool if you're trying to work with your dog on a behavior maybe demand barking you know um, going to the door anything like that treat and train go buy one and here's some of Sophia Yin's quote she committed suicide which is very sad because she was a great animal advocate Positive training is more than just giving treats. It's about moving in ways that make your message clear and the interactions fun. Mm. Instead of using coercion, we can learn to lead like a leader in a dance. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Whether we're aware of it or not, every interaction we have with the pet is a training session. 
I like that. The use of force in training can cause a dog to seem stubborn and willful when they are actually frustrated, confused, and or have little motivation other than the need to avoid mm. fear and pain. Ooh, yeah! You want me to send you that one? Yes, I'm at. By understanding your pet's expressions and learning what motivates him, you'll be able to connect with him on a new level and build a trusting relationship. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And then this is Ian Dunbar. But I think Ooh, you, I love him. You, you already know. Do you already know what I'm going to say? No, what are you going to say? Oh, my God. Impeccable timing. Mm-hmm. Oh, say it. It's my favorite quote. Okay, so to those of you who still um, are feeling inclined to use your e-collars, I have this to say to you. Well, Ian Dunbar does. What is he, Sarah? Ian Dunbar is a trainer. He was actually um, the first person to really – I can't talk. I'm going to fan. I'm so hungry. Um, he really advocated for puppy classes and using lures to get our puppies into positions and, um, like, socialization. Oh, he created the bite scale. Yeah, Ian Dunbar's bite scale and, like, puppy classes because we used to – train dogs starting when they were like six or seven months old that was what people did like when the dog was mature that's when you started training Mm -hmm. and Dunbar was the one who was like no like we need to get them fresh like start things now fresh (laughs) fresh out the womb not first 12 to 16 weeks is the critical period but that's another episode Yeah, veterinary animal behaviorist dog trainer. He has a veterinary degree and a special honors degree in physiology mm. and biochemistry from Royal Veterinary College oh. at London University and a doctorate in animal behavior from the psychology department at UC Berkeley, where he researched the development of social hierarchies and aggression in domestic dogs. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm just going to read it. To use a shock as an effective dog training method, you will oh. need... A thorough understanding of canine behavior. A thorough understanding of learning theory. Impeccable timing. And if you have those three things, you don't need a shock collar. I love that. I love that. Please, please email us questions. Yeah. Concerns feedback comments um articles anything the next episode is going to be very crazy we're going to actually be having some guests this will be a first guest episode we're going to be having three guests yeah next episode is going to be freaking wild we're not even going to tell you anything else just come and tune back in it's going to be crazy y'all all right. All right, folks. Peace. See you soon, folks. Bye. Bye.